Ruth chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 14 where we left off. And while you're still making your way there, I'm going to tell you about Henry Ford. You guys all know Henry Ford. He's uh, the maker of the first automobile, and uh, he is the um, inventor of the mass assembly plant. And it was in uh, early 1930 that... uh, his mass assembly plant actually broke down. There was a problem with one of his key generators. And he called in a guy by the name of Charlie Stenman to, uh, to fix the generator. Charlie was a brilliant engineer and electrical engineer. He was the guy that actually uh, designed the generator in the first place. So when it shut down uh, unexplainably, he called Charlie to come in and fix it. And Charlie assessed the problem. He says, look, I can fix it, but it's going to cost you $10,000 doing the math and figuring what he was losing, you know, every day that the plant was down. He readily agreed $10,000 was a bargain at twice the price. So, yeah, all right, come and do it. So Charlie goes in, literally takes his little toolbox, goes in, tinkers around for 10 minutes and fixes it. It's up and running again. Instead of being happy, you you would think that Henry Ford would be happy, but instead of being happy, he was mad. Uh, and, uh, and he got a hold of Charlie and he's like, I, p- I paid you $10,000 to tinker around for 10 minutes. Charlie said, huh, tell you what, <clears throat> for tinkering around for 10 minutes, I charge you, he says, I paid you 10 grand to tinker for 10 minutes. He says, for tinkering for 10 minutes, I charge you 10 bucks. He said, but for knowing where to tinker and sharing that knowledge with you, I charge you $9,990. <laughs> And Henry Ford said, yeah, you're right. And he paid the the price. It's been said that a wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man learns by his own experience. And a fool learns by nobody's experience. Uh, And that's the focus of our study today. We're going to look at how to wisely learn from the experience of others. Um, Now, we're in the book of Ruth. We saw last week that the predominant theme so far in Ruth has been choices. Uh, You you know, Ruth chapter 1, we see a guy by the name of Elimelech. He moves his family uh, away from Bethlehem, away from from the the land of God into a pagan nation amongst a pagan people, uh, taking his family out of fellowship, as it were, with God, uh, makes a very foolish choice. And uh, the choice ends up being disastrous. Elimelech dies. His two sons die. They leave three widows behind uh, to fend for themselves. And uh, so, you know, bad choices. Chapter 2, we looked at last week. Uh, We start to see some good choices, uh, starting with Naomi, Elimelech's widow. She makes the choice, hey, I'm not going to stay here in this pagan land and waste away. I'm going to return to Bethlehem. I'm going to return to the land of God. I'm going to return to the Lord. Uh, and so she makes a good choice. Her daughters-in-law say, hey, we're going with you. Uh, she tries to talk him out of it. She basically says, look, you girls, you know, you're from Moab and you ought to just, I'm not going to be able to give you any more sons. I don't have any more sons to give. And you got no future with me, basically. Stay here. Let your families take care of you. Find a husband. Find, find a home. Uh, Orpah says, okay, she stays. But, uh, but Ruth Ruth decides, no, I'm with you. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She makes the choice. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with you back to Bethlehem. Uh, I admire your faith. I recognize something in you that I want. I have a hunger for that. And so she makes a good choice. They go. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, basically we're seeing these choices. And, uh, and what happens then is that 
they come into the land of Bethlehem, and coming into the land of Bethlehem, now you've got these two widows, they're trying to figure out, hey, what are we going to do to make a living? How are we going to make ends meet? And Ruth says, hey, you know, uh, Levitical law allows that I can go and glean for, you know, for a meal. Let me, I'm younger, you know, let me, Naomi, let me go. Let me go glean. Let me go get, get, get a living. So she goes out, she's gleaning. God providentially places her in the path of Boaz, uh, the hero of our story. And, and she meets Boaz last week and they have, you know, this connection and the sparks fly and he's liking what he's seeing and she's liking what he, she's seeing. And so there's just all of these good choices that we looked at, the choices that, that Boaz would have made to bring him to this place and the good choices that Ruth made to bring her to this place. And, uh, and so, uh, so that, that, that's all the ground we've covered so far. Now, what we're going to see as we continue now in, the, in the, the, the study is the importance of making uh, good choices in life is often dictated by the advice that we receive. Making good choices in your life is, is often the result of the advice that you receive in your life. That's the big idea of the message as we, as we continue now uh, in, uh, in the, the study. Um, Proverbs twelve fifteen says this. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Uh, I like the way the New Living Translation puts that. Uh, it says, fools think they need no advice, but the wise listen to others. Uh, and uh, keep that in mind as we, uh, as we start the study now. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Now, Boaz uh, said to her, that is Ruth, at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread, dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. In other words, she took a doggy bag. She's going to take it home to, uh, to Naomi and bless her as well. Verse 15, and when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. If, if, if you are looking uh, to, to be wise, and if you are uh, going to solicit or seek out good advice, which all wise people do, then the first thing you want to take note of is that you need to look at the example that is set by the wise people around you. You need to look at the example set by the wise people around you. Uh, some of the best advice that we can receive is not advice that we will solicit. It's not advice that we will hear. It's advice that we will observe in the life of wise people around us. And here's the, here's the thing that you need to know is that God places wise people strategically in your path that you can meet, who can, who can impart wisdom to you if you will pay attention. And, and that's the thing that, that we're seeing here is that Boaz is this guy who's modeling for his employees and, and ultimately for Ruth as well, how to have a servant's heart. I mean, you see it, it starts there in verse 14. Boaz invites Ruth to join them at mealtime, which, which tells us that Boaz, here, he's, he's the rich plantation owner he's the rich farm owner and yet he's 
sitting down having a meal with his people. He's not saying, I'm above you. You know, he's not, he's not rolling up in his, you know, Cadillac Escalade with the spinning, spinner rims on there and, you know, I'm better than you kind of thing. And, well, you guys enjoy whatever it is you're eating. I'll be at the sushi place, you know, or whatever. No, he's having a meal with his employees. He probably provided it for his employees. You know, and so here he is. He's got this meal and, and his employees all sitting there. Ruth, he invites her to join him. And notice, he's serving her, Right? He serves her the meal, the, the, the plate there, and he gives to her. Now, again, he's the owner. She's the servant. She should be serving him, but he is choosing to serve her. She, which ought to sound kind of vaguely familiar to us because uh, there is someone who's very near and dear to us that we should be serving and who himself chosen to serve us, Jesus Christ. The key verse in, uh, in Mark's gospel, Mark 10, 45, tells us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus, although he should have rightfully come and, and been served by his people, no, he came, he laid down his life to serve his people and thereby setting an example for you and me as Christian believers that we too we're not, we're not King Farouk waiting for the world to wait on me. But no, if I want to be like Jesus, then, I, then I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to be a servant just as he came to, to serve. And so, so Boaz setting this example here to his servants and to Ruth, hey, I'm not above you. I'm not better than you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to bless you. And so he, he sets that example. Also, notice that he gives the instructions to his young men, hey, want you to take care of Ruth. And so even though, you know, the law stipulates that she can glean in these corners of the field, I want you to let her glean even where the law doesn't stipulate that she can, even where she doesn't have a right. I want to be gracious to her in this way. You let her glean even among the sheaves. Not only that, drop stuff for her on purpose. Be gracious to her. Boaz setting the example for these young men saying, look, this is how you treat a woman. Certainly how you treat a woman in need. You watch out for her, you care for her, you nurture her. This is the way that you live your life. And these young men, if they're smart, they're taking notes. They're saying, hey, here's Boaz, and man, I love that car that Boaz drives. Oh, I love everything that Boaz has accomplished in his life. If they're smart, they're saying, I'm going to watch how he lives. I'm going to watch what he does. I'm going to take note of every." careful thing. It's an important principle in life, by the way. You might want to write this down. If you want to be wise, then you need to strategically look for wise people in your life. You want to watch what they do, and you want to take note of it. Super important thing. There was a, a gal in our fellowship time back, and uh, Keep this purposely big. Gal in our fellowship, time back, and, and she, she, um, she reached out to, to another gal. And just, just, hey, I'm seeing you making some mistakes in your life, and, and I, I'd like to counsel you. And, and I can tell you, you know, the, the heart, the attitude, it wasn't a, oh, I've got it all together, and you should listen to it. That wasn't the heart. That wasn't the attitude. It was a heart of love. It was a heart of compassion. It was a heart of, I just see you making some mistakes, and I want, uh, I, I just, your sister, I just want to love you and, you know, just, 
I, I care about you, you know? So I, I'm your sister in Christ, and this is what I want to do. And so she tries to give this gal some counsel. The, 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 the girl basically says, thanks, but no thanks. So I, I, I just don't think that's, that's wise. I just, I just don't want to take your counsel. And so again, with all humility, the, the gal basically feels let the Lord says this to her. She says, you know, with all due respect, I'm a married woman. I'm raising several kids. We are, you know, making our own way, doing our best to walk with the Lord uh, and, you know, keeping a home and, uh, and me, you know, trying to nurture and care for my husband. You're a 50-year-old woman. You're living at home with your mom and dad. You haven't made the best choices. And I think maybe, it, just maybe, it might be wise for you to listen to somebody who is trying to keep you from making the same decisions and the same mistakes that have gotten you to this place in life. It's a tough conversation to have with somebody, you know? But it's at those conversations where I'm reminded that that it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend, you know? And and so this person, I mean, we've all heard it. The definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing, expect different results, you know, and, and yet here's this person just keeps doing the same thing and is, is disappointed in, in life and the fact that, you know, half her life is gone. She's living at home. She's, she, you know, she hasn't, she's made some bad choices in her life. For, for Brenda and I, you know, we, um, in raising our kids, I'll use that as an example, we, um, we decided early on when it comes to raising our kids that, you know, we're going to read everything that we can. We're going to do everything we can to equip ourselves. But one of the most valuable things that we did was we looked for kids that were like the way we wanted our kids to be. And we just looked for those kids that we like. Those are some good kids right there. And we found their parents and we said, can we have dinner? Because <laughs> we got some questions for you. And we want to know... <laughs> How'd you raise such a great kid? You know, what did you do? And we would do that. We'd always make it a point to find those kids that were, you know, season ahead of us where we where we were at. Their season of life ahead of us, and we would we we'd seek them out. And, and I've I've tried to do this in many areas in my life, and and we do well to do that. You know, vocationally, hey, I, you know, this guy is successful, and I like what he's done. Well, I want to find out what he's done to get there. Uh, you know, this guy's a, a great husband. I want to know, I want to be a good husband like he is. Hey, dude, what, you know, what, what, how did you do that? Uh, this guy's a good father. I want to be a good father, whatever the case may be. And there's always opportunities to do that. I, I remember years ago, I had the occasion to sit down with, with, uh, with Pastor Chuck Smith and uh, with his assistant uh, on di- different occasions, uh, uh, Romaine. Um, Romaine is, is, is just, <laughs> he's, he's since gone home to be with the Lord, but he was a tough as nails kind of guy. So, you know, in meeting with them, uh, I asked them some key questions and you might want to write down some of the questions, you know, you, you ask, you know, what books do you read? Uh, what are your spiritual disciplines? You know, I'll go really fast. If you don't write them down, you can, you can listen to the message online. Uh, what are your priorities? How do you set your priorities? Um, uh, what have been the greatest lessons that you've learned over the years? 
what are the biggest mistakes that you've made in your life? That's a huge question. It's been said that, that uh, we do well to learn from the mistakes of others because nobody lives long enough to make all the mistakes themselves. You know? So you, what you want to do is you want to learn, learn from the mistakes of others. So, hey, what are the biggest mistakes that you've made? And a corollary question to that is, what, what are the regrets that you have? Um, and so I asked those questions, the last ones in particular, of, of both of Pastor Chuck and of, of Pastor Romaine. Pastor Chuck said this, that his, his biggest regret was not spending more time with his children. I went, noted. Don't sacrifice your kids on the altar ministry. Important, important thing. Romaine, who had tough as nails uh, reputation and well-earned, and, you know, he was a Marine. He was a former Marine. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, hey, what's your biggest regret? He, his was the most interesting. He told me, I'd love people more. Okay, important point. And the thing is, is you want to find those people that, and, and here's the catch, they got to be people you respect and that are worthy of respect. Remember, Boaz, in our example, the Bible calls Boaz a worthy man. You remember, we looked at that last week at the beginning of chapter two. Boaz is a worthy man. We asked the question, worthy of what? And the answer is worthy of respect, worthy of admiration, worthy of imitation. Because he was a man that was a godly man. He, he, he did things right. So what you want to do is you don't want to model your life after some guy that's, you know, hey, he's brilliantly successful in business. How, you know, I want to model my life after you. Well, you might find out that the guy is a complete, you know, zero character snake in the grass and you don't want to, you don't want to get rich like he got rich, you know, on the backs of other people, whatever. You, you want to be able to find a worthy man, a worthy woman, as the Lord would define worthy. Those are the ones that you want to follow. And so, Again, the, the, the idea for you is to go, okay, Lord, who are the people that you have placed in my life that are worthy? And who are the people that I should be looking to, that I should be imitating, that I should be following? Uh, you should be making appointments this week to have coffee with people and say, I've got some questions for you. And start taking notes. And, and again, it's not just enough to, to appreciate the information we need to appropriate it. We need to put feet on it. We need to take action on it. We continue, verse 17. So Ruth, she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. That's about five and a half gallons, uh, which, which is about two weeks worth of wages. All right, so modern day equivalent, that's, you know, two to four thousand dollars. Uh, you know, not, not bad for an honest day's work. Uh, so she, she brings home five and a half gallon tub, first day on the job. And then she took it up and she went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had eaten and been satisfied. In other words, she brought out the doggy bag. She goes, and if that ain't enough, here's some prime rib too that I took from, from lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, verse 19, where have you gleaned today? Now you can imagine how she said that. It probably was like, where have you gleaned it? You hit the jackpot. You know, this is the tone of her voice. And she says, so where, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, mind your old business, you bitter hag. Don't be talking to me about... No, that's not what she said. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Here's the deal. Second point, if you're writing it down, 
You want to make sure that not only are you looking at the examples of wise people, you want to make sure that you're listening to the counsel of your elders. Okay, because it could have been so easy for Ruth here to get home after a long day working and, and Naomi there, Naomi's been sitting, she's an older woman, she's been sitting home alone, she's got a bunch of words she hasn't gotten out yet, you know, and, 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 and Ruth may be a girl too, but she's been working all day, she's tired, and it would have been very easy for her to do, as I jokingly said, you know, mind your own business, I'm tired, leave me alone. No, she listens, and, and listen to what Naomi says, it, it ends up being brilliantly important. Uh, verse 20, then Naomi said to her, at, this is at the news of, of uh, Ruth saying, yeah, I gleaned in the field of Boaz, Naomi at that point must have perked up. She said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Now, a few things to see here. First of all, oh, how, what difference a day makes. Because here Naomi, when she came back into town, we read, you know, last week, she comes into town, her name Naomi means pleasant, and all of her old friends, oh, pleasant is back. And she's like, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, it means bitter. Call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I'm a bitter woman, don't, don't call me pleasant. And now here she's, she's quickly, the same woman who said that is saying, blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Now she points out, this man is a, rel- a relation of ours. He's one of our close relatives. Super hugely important information. We're going to come to that in just a minute. But before we do, turn to Titus chapter 2. It's in the New Testament after uh, 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 2, Titus coming after 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy after 1 Timothy. Titus chapter 2. Now, a little setup here. Paul wrote to Titus. This is an epistle. And basically, Titus was in Crete. And Paul wrote to Titus with these instructions. He said, uh, I'm writing to you that you would set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded to you. So basically, he's saying, look, you as the spiritual leader there in Crete, you need to set some things in order. So Paul goes on to give him some instructions about how to set things in order, you know. And, and so we, we, with that in mind, we, we come to chapter 2 of Titus, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Paul tells Titus in regards to setting things in order. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. That word reverent literally means suitable to a sacred office. Uh, and in behavior, it, it speaks of not just actions, but it also speaks of their dress, their attire. Okay, there's a thought. Huh? Uh, let's give some thought to our attire, ladies. That's good. And so it says that the older women, likewise, should be reverent, you know, acting in a way that's suitable to, to a sacred office. And here's the idea. That you older women, you hold a sacred office. Same thing, you older men. You hold a sacred office. And that sacred office is one that... that makes it incumbent upon you to take the younger under your wing and to be able to train them up, to be able to set an example for them, to be able to encourage them in the way that they should go. 
So he continues in, in verse 2. He says, uh, the, teach the older women that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Notice what he says in verse 4, that they admonish the young woman to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obediently, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's a very interesting thing. Teaching them to love their husbands and love their children. Ladies, can I ask you, do you really need to be taught to love your husbands and love your children? Seems like something that come very naturally, right? Now here's the idea. He's saying, teach them how to love their husbands, how to love their children. I had a heartbreaking thing recently where I was talking to an older gal, just in tears, sobbing, because she is estranged from from her kids. You know, her husband left her years ago. Now her kids don't want to have anything to do with her. And really, when you trace it all back and you get to its root origin, nobody ever taught her how to love her husband, how to love her children. She loves her kids. She just pushed them away by making bad choices. And, and so the whole idea here is, is Paul telling Titus, look, the way you set the church in order is you gotta, you gotta, as a foundation of this, you have to have the older people teaching the younger people. It has to be part of, of a healthy church because the older people have a lot of wisdom to impart to the younger people. And so with that thought in mind, back in, in Ruth chapter two, Naomi now, she is imparting wisdom to Ruth. And, and, she, and the first thing there, she, she's like, huh, wow, he, he's one of our relatives. Now, interesting, the word that she used there when she says he's one of our close relatives, it's the word goel. What is goel, you ask? Well, turn to the left, a couple of books, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. We're going to explain what this means. We'll be looking at this a lot more in depth next week. But Deuteronomy chapter 25. What we have here in Deuteronomy chapter 25 is a continuation of the, the, the discussion of the law. The law that is given to God's people. And, uh, and so Deuteronomy 25 beginning in verse 5 says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man uh, shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. In other words, go to those that hold your husband accountable and tell on him. That's what this is basically saying. Uh, Verse 8, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. You got some splaining to do. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, verse 9, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, (laughs) spit in his face, 
and answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now, crazy. Here's the thing. This is cool. God loves his people. He wants to care for his people. He wants to take care of of his people. And a law like this, it accomplishes a bunch of things. It, it makes sure, hey, that this guy's widow is taken care of. It makes sure that this guy's name continues on. I mean, I remember for me having a son, knowing that my name, you know, my family name, it either stops with me or it continues. I had a boy. When I said it's a boy, I'm like, my family name continues. And that's an important thing to a guy. So this law allows for that to continue. Here's something else that, that this law does. Now, I don't have any brothers, but imagine, you know, those of you that guys that do, and you're living under this law, and your brother says, yeah, I met this chick, I, I really I like her a lot. Don't you know you'd be super interested to know who are you dating, man? Because you might be on the hook someday to marry that gal. So you're like, whoa, hey, whoa, 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 hey, I want to know who you're dating. See, today, I mean, a brother tells another brother, hey, I met this girl, I like her. You're like, hey, you know, whatever floats your boat, dude, that's fine. You know, you, you like her, that's all that matters. Well, no, no, no. This says, hey, the family is so important. This really binds a family together, man. I want to make sure you pick a good woman. That's what I want to do. So I'm going to be really involved, really interested. So again, back in, in Ruth, here, what, what Naomi's doing is she's imparting wisdom to young Ruth by, by basically <coughs> excuse me, saying, hey, look, here's who this guy is. This guy is your Goel, okay? This is important stuff. This isn't just some you know, rich guy who, who looks good in, in a business suit you know, and manages a business. Well, no, this guy is your Goel. She's imparting that information. But she goes on, and we see something interesting here. Verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Now, I want to set the scene for you here, okay? So we kind of read this and understand this in context. What Ruth is doing, Ruth is explaining to Naomi the, the, the facts of what's going on in regards to this guy is your Goel. But also what, what Naomi is doing, Naomi, in, in explaining this to Ruth, also, what Naomi is doing is she, you know, she's recognizing in Ruth, she's kind of she's interested in this guy. You know, Ruth comes home, and you probably can just see, you know, she's just, well, I'll explain it this way. My, my girls, when they were in school, we always knew when they were interested in a guy because they'd say his name like 50 million times, <laughs> Right? And then, you know, and we would play a game with them. Brenda would, she, she'd say, uh, Caitlin, say Zach. She'd be like, Zach, you know, just <laughs> couldn't even, just melt, you know. And so you, you know that, that Naomi sees Ruth come back and she's like, oh, and this and this and this. And Boaz this and Boaz that and Boaz, and then Boaz passed the thing to me. And then Boaz this. And so Naomi sees, she's sweet on Boaz, you know. So, so here's the thing. What happens, so, you know, seeing that, and so she tells him, she tells Naomi, or Naomi tells Ruth, oh, hey, Boaz, wow, this is your Goel. No sooner does she say that, what does Ruth say in verse 21? 
Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay. Again, you get the thing? She's talking in, she, it, back to Boaz. Let me tell you more about Boaz. He also said to me this. You know, so that's what, what's conveyed there. So Naomi does something very wise. Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. Uh, and so she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. Okay? So, so the thing is, that Ruth is basically, Naomi is basically saying to Ruth, okay, now, honey, he is your Goel. And you could, you know, you could go right now and say, hey, you're my Goel. This is my right. You know, let's do this thing. But sweetheart, what I'm seeing in you is you're sweet on this guy. And you want him to love you back. So probably best, let's, just, let's let this thing simmer for a while. Let's let this thing cook. Because, you know, guys, they're a little slower, you know. So no, not as quick. And again, I'll just I'll, I'll illustrate this this way. What Naomi's picking up on is the fact that things, they just do need to do that. They need to simmer. You know, m- my wife makes pot roast. And she'll put it in the, the crock pot. And that thing, she'll leave it in there for like 12 hours and to where just the, everything's just falling apart. It's just simmering. And it just is, I, I, I'm just, I can't, I mean, you just drool walking in the door. It's like, no, you got to wait. It's not ready. Don't you know by the time that meal is served, I am hungry, man. I want that meal. And so Naomi, wise woman, she's like, Ruth, I see you're sweet for this guy. Let's just let things simmer here. And, you know, you take note. She says that she did. She stayed close by the young woman of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. You know, that would have been, you know, that would have been about six weeks, and so, again, six weeks, six weeks to get to know each other, you know, which, again, that's another wise thing. Naomi just saying, hey, you know, nothing wrong with getting to know the guy that, that you want to marry. You know, take some time. Get to know him. Make sure that, you know, you've only known him a day. So, yeah, that's cool. Take the time, you know, six weeks of, of being together day in, day out. Six weeks of, you know, the, 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 the heat building, man. You know, they're seeing each other every single day. And, and you know, I mean, okay, think, just think back. You know, when, you, when you're getting ready for work and you're thinking, they're going to be there today. Oh, he's, he's always so handsome when he shows up. <laughs> Is he going to be there? And so this, this thought of, you know, oh, he's going to be there. And then, oh, you're talking. You can see him maybe walking her home, you know, every night or, or something. Boaz, walking around with that big old stupid grin on his face. You know, just nobody can wipe it off. He's just in, in another world. Uh, it's funny, you read uh, J. Vernon McGee's commentary on Ruth, and he, he, he just kind of speculates that he, Boaz is just this love-struck person. He describes him as a, as a uh, sick calf out in the rain. You know, that's probably what Boaz looked like. He's just this guy that, you know, walking around, tripping around. And, you know, you can, you can sense the buzz that's going on maybe in Bethlehem. Oh, our most eligible bachelor. Look at him. He's in love. You know, and this is kind of what's cooking here. And, and, and Naomi, just being a wise woman saying, hey, sweetheart, let him wait. Let him wonder. Don't just, don't just don't go rushing in. Wise advice for you young girls. Does a guy good? Leave something to the imagination. Okay? Just let him wait. Let him wonder. Uh, let things simmer. 
And that's what's going on here. And so wise, wise counsel. You can just see Naomi looking out the window every day as Ruth comes walking in. And they're just so weird together and laughing. And everybody is all uncomfortable around them because what is going on there? So we get to chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, oh, one other thing before I move on there. Just point of application. Six weeks, end of barley season, end of wheat, uh, the harvest. Look at the last few words there in verse 23. And she dwelt with Boaz. No, she dwelt with her mother-in-law. See, there's a lot of gals in this situation. If this were reading in 2010, it would be, and she dwelt with Boaz, and they shacked up together and got themselves a nice little place while they worked and see, hey, is this thing going to work? And let's see if the relay, right? And you can see a lot of people make that mistake. I do a lot of, you know, pre-marriage counseling. Of people coming in, Pastor Ted, we're in love. We want to get married. Will you marry us? Yeah, can, can I take you through some pre-marriage counseling before? Because I like to make sure that you're, oh yeah. And so I always, and if you ever, like maybe you're dating and you think you're going to come to see me for pre-marriage counseling, I'm just going to let you in on what I do. Because I start off with, hey, how'd you guys meet? Tell me the story. Oh, and they're happy to tell you the story. Oh, that's so cool. How'd he ask you out? Uh-huh. And, and how long did you date? How'd you pop the question? How'd you ask her to marry? You know, you just sort of, and then I say, can I ask you some difficult questions? What are they going to say? No. Man, I got, I got them at that point, man. They're there. <laughs> Can I ask you some difficult questions? They're like, yes. Like, you sleeping together? You know, like eight out of ten people tell me, yeah, we're sleeping together. I'm like, guys, <laughs> Bible talks about that. You know, the... the the Bible calls that fornication. That's an F word, guys. That's not good, okay? That's not right. And, and, and you know, I, I go, can I ask you another difficult question? Yes. You living together? You know, eight out of, eight out of ten people come to see me for pre-marriage counseling or living together. I'm like, guys, that is a bad idea. Don't, you know, it's sin. Now, here's the, tra- the tragedy. Early in my ministry, um, I would tell people, guys, you can't live together when you're not married. And they would say, I know, I know, it's not right. And I, yeah, it's not right. Now I tell people, hey, you know, you can't live together before you're married. And they go, why? <laughs> Seriously, Christians, sit in my office, why? I go, I don't know, I can think of a few things. The Bible says, avoid the appearance of evil. The Bible says, flee your youthful lusts. Oh, well, you know, we'll sleep in separate bedrooms until we get married. Like, you haven't been able to do that yet. What makes you think you're going to be able to do that now? Dude, you can't go on a diet when you're in the donut shop. That's not going to (laughs) happen. You know? No. So, you know, here, she's making wise choices, man. She dwells with her mother-in-law. They're courting, but man, she's doing everything right. Ladies, gentlemen, note. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? That word security, if you're a note-taker, interesting word. It's the same word that uh, is used in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, and in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, this is the account, the transaction that takes place between Ruth and, and, and her two daughters-in-law when, uh, when she says to them, 
uh, you know, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of your husband. She's trying to talk them out, Orpah and Ruth, she's trying to talk them out of coming with her. She's like, I'm not, I can't supply any more guys for you. You're better off just staying here with your family and finding somebody uh, to marry. And she uses that word rest. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of your husband. Same word, that word rest, as this word security. Here's the idea. It's the Hebrew word manna watch, which I probably just butchered it. But here's what that word means. It means a place of rest and security. And can I tell you, that's what a marriage is supposed to be. Your marriage is supposed to be a place of rest and security. You know... The Bible says in in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, verse 24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And and you know, 25 is literal. Yeah, they were literally naked. But it's also figurative in the sense that, hey, they're in this union, this beautiful marriage union together, and there's nothing hidden. It's just they're bare and naked and open to one another, and it's this beautiful place of of rest and security. And where does that rest and security come from? Well, it comes from verse 24, where a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Basically, he forsakes all others. And he is united with his wife and he says, come hell or high water, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you, which the words ought to sound familiar because that's what the Lord says to us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that's where our security comes from. That's where I have rest and I have peace and I have security in knowing that the Lord's never going to leave me, that he's never going to forsake me, that, that he, he is, he's, he's united with me. He's made this decision. Forsaking all others, being united together. We will be one flesh. And so, so this, is, this is what marriage is to be. And this is Naomi's hope for Ruth. She says, I want this for you. Verse 2, she says, uh, Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now, if you read this, you go... Naomi, man, that sounds sounds a little, I'm a little uncomfortable reading that. What are you telling her to do? Now that just seems a little, a little forward, a little familiar. It just seems wrong what you're, what you're, no, it's not. It's not sexual, it's cultural. We'll talk about that in a minute. And, And to kind of get a better idea of this, let me first explain the threshing floor. What happened at the threshing floor, first of all, the threshing floor was up on the hilltop. They would put it there because what happened is they would reap, they would, uh, they would, cut the wheat or the barley, and they would take it up to the threshing floor. And then on the threshing floor, they would take oxen and they would drag a millstone and they would, they would crush all everything down, all the stalks that they had cut. And then they would take pitchforks and they would throw the whole mixture up in the air. 
And being situated up on the hilltop, the wind would come and would blow the chaff away and, and what would fall down would be the, the wheat kernels that they wanted to save. The, and, and so that's the way that, that, that they would do this. Now, as I said, it was located up on, on the hilltop. Now, this was a time of, of great celebration, a huge feast. Whole families would, every time it, when it was harvest season and time for threshing, everybody would go up. They'd make fires, they'd camp out, all the kids would be up there and they'd play. And, and, and as long as the wind was blowing, they were threshing. And then when the wind stopped blowing, and then they would settle down. And, and it was just a, a time of, of great fellowship, lots of festivity. But it was also a vulnerable time in the sense that thieves and marauders could come in and steal. And so what would happen is the, the guys at night, they would sleep right there on the threshing floor next to what they had harvested to guard it and protect it. And so that's what's going on here. And when Naomi suggests to Ruth, hey, I want you to go up there and lay at his feet and uncover his feet. First of all, there would have been all kinds of people all, all around. So it's, it's not, she's not suggesting they do anything inappropriate. But also what it would be in that culture, it would be a, to, a sign of a total submission. It would be an act of total submission on Naomi's part or on uh, Ruth's part. Uh, David Guzik says it this way. He says, in that day, this was understood to be the role of a servant, to lay at their master's feet and be ready for any command of the master. So when Naomi told Ruth to lie down at Boaz's feet, she told her to come to him in a totally humble and submissive way. This is her instruction to her. Now, I want you not to lose sight of the larger picture here. Because here's the larger picture. Ruth is coming to claim a right that she has. She's, she, Naomi's saying, hey, the time is right. Go, go get your goel. And so Ruth is going to claim a right that she has, but she's doing it in a very humble and a submissive way. Uh, she basically, in a sense, is going to, to Boaz saying, I respect you, I trust you, and I put my fate in your hands. Now, ladies, men, let me just say to you, Guys, you want a Ruth. You do. You want your wife to, to, to have this attitude of submission towards you. You want her heart and her attitude to say, I respect you, I trust you, I put my fate in your hands. And, and, and you're right to want that because it's biblical and it's appropriate. But my question for you is, are you acting like a Boaz? Are you somebody that your wife can respect? Are you somebody that your wife can trust? Is it, are you someone that she can place her fate into your hands? Is that your characterization? Or are you someone that just is looking for your wife to fully submit to you, but, but you, ha- you're, you have no character? You, you have no care, no concern, or very little of it. See, you, we all want to have that Ruth, but are we willing to behave like a Boaz to have that? Now, ladies, that doesn't, if your husband isn't acting that way, doesn't, doesn't let you off the hook, doesn't it? You can't say, oh, until you become a Boaz, I'm not going to submit to you. No, because you have to deal with God. Because you're called to submit to your husband regardless of how he acts, regardless of how he behaves. You still have a responsibility before God to submit to him. But guys, can I just tell you that if you'd act more like Boaz, they will submit a lot more readily. Now, ladies, you want a Boaz. 
You want that man who's going to respect you, who's going to love you, who's going to honor you, who's going to lay his life down for you. That's what you want. But can I ask you the question? Are you a Ruth? Are you being submissive? Are you having this attitude where you're saying, I respect you, I trust you? See, because it works both ways. Guys, you have the responsibility to love your wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. Ladies, you have the responsibility to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, Ephesians 5.22. And it's both mutually our responsibilities, and it's so much better when we each do our part. And so here what we see is that that Naomi says to, to Ruth, go up and claim your man, but do so with an attitude of humble submission, saying, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm at your feet. That's the picture that she paints, and this is, this is the, the, the desire. Now, uh, Ruth said to her, verse 5, all that you say to me, I will do. That's an important principle. When you follow wise counsel, or when you receive wise counsel, do it. Don't just appreciate it, appropriate it. So she says, all you say to me, I will do. Now, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, uh, and I'm just, as I glance at the clock, I'm just going to make a couple more points of application. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. This is a proposal of marriage. My mom proposed to my dad, by the way. It was not my dad. My mom said to my dad, will you marry me? Uh, which is funny. My mom's kind of bold that way. She called us on our honeymoon for crying out loud. Honey, how are you? <laughs> okay, mom. <clears throat> She'll die a thousand deaths that I just told you that. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, so Ruth proposes here. She says, hey, will you marry me? Verse 10, and then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Really interesting there, that word virtuous. uh, It's a word that's used to describe heroes in the Bible. This is the exact same word that was used uh, toward Gideon. When, when he said, when he called, the, the, the Lord called him a mighty man of valor. It's the exact same word. It means strong. It means efficient. It means able. And, and, and Boaz tells, tells Ruth, you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I'm a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. Probably an uncle, a brother of Elimelech. Uh, and uh, verse 13, he says, stay this night. And in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, now he didn't really mean that, but good, (laughs) let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. He's concerned about her safety. It's a time, time of marauders. It's a dangerous time. Don't go back out at night. Don't go home. Stay here until the morning. 
uh, verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, not, not hiding that there was something inappropriate in this, but uh, rather Boaz is like, hey, I want to, I want this woman. I'm head over heels in love with this woman. And there's another guy who's in line before me. And so I don't want him, you know, finding out that she's coming. I don't want anything to interfere with that. I want to keep everything on the DL so I can go secure her for myself. That's the whole heart here. Don't let it be known that the woman uh, came to the threshing floor. Verse 15. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. And that, you know, six ephahs of barley, that's like 36 pounds of, of harvested grain that he's giving to her. And so this is a big old load for her to carry. Now, interesting, why did he do this? Well, we'll see in a minute. When she came to her mother-in-law, verse 16, she said, is that you, my daughter? Now, some people misinterpret this. They say, well, she, you know, Naomi didn't know who it was. Is that you, my daughter? No, that's not what's taking place here. What she's, what she's saying is, uh, is that you, Mrs. Boaz? That's what she's saying. You know Naomi was up all night waiting for Ruth to come back. Give me the information, man. What happened? So she's like, is that you, Mrs. Boaz? Uh, and then she told her all that the man had done for her. Verse 17, and she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That guy is a wise man right there. <laughs> Guys, you single men, take note. Date the mother as well as the girl, okay? Because if mama don't like you, it ain't going well. You want her mom to like you. Trust me. You want her mom to like you, okay? So he's just a wise man here at every turn. Verse 18, then she said, and we're going we're gonna to close with this. Take note here. He's, then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now that word sit still, that phrase, it means literally to stay and to be set. And here's the idea. She says, girl, he loves you. Boy, that man loves you. He is not, this day is not going to end. He will, he will redeem you because he loves you. He's crazy about you. He's head over heels about you. And so Naomi's just saying, look, you can, you can stay and you can be set. You don't have to pace the floor. You don't have to worry. You don't have to nail bite because this man, he loves you and he's coming for you. Take it to the bank. Now, why do I emphasize that? Well, because, you know, just as we see the instructions that Naomi gave to Ruth and how to come to him, they're instructions on how we come to the Lord. You know, because she told Ruth, hey, Wash yourself, in verse 3, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. And guys, those are steps that all of us take in our approaching the Lord. And that as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we were washed, we were sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about this. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And it goes on and on with a list of things are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And so as we come to our Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we're washed, we're cleansed, we're, we're made clean. And then what happens is we, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to take residence in us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is we're clothed in new garments. As you read through the book of Revelation, it's all this metaphorical picture about how we are clothed in white robes and, and clothed in these, in these beautiful garments. But can I tell you, for all that to happen, we need to go to the threshing floor. See, because here's the thing, under the Mosaic law, yes, Ruth is entitled to claim Boaz as her kinsman redeemer, but in order for her to claim that right, she has to exercise it. Boaz couldn't come to her and say, I'm exercising my right to redeem you. No, the way the law worked, she had to go to Boaz and she had to say, you're my redeemer and I'm exercising that right. And that's exactly the way it works by faith. We need to go to the threshing floor and we need to ask the Lord, our kinsman redeemer, to redeem us. And so we come to him by faith. The scripture says in Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, for whoever believes on him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord over all is rich. Listen, to all who call upon him, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in the very same way that Ruth cannot, she doesn't have to pace the floor, you can set, you can be still because your kinsman redeemer loves you and you've, you've come to him and you've asked him to redeem you. He will, he will do it. In the same way, Christian, as you ask and trust the Lord Jesus Christ with your life, he will redeem you. He will redeem you. Because he loves you that much.